Amen. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Annika. And thank you, Raquel, for the beautiful prelude before this service on the harp. If you'll open your Bibles to Exodus 20, we'll be in a few passages, but we'll certainly be there. And I'd like us to go to the throne of grace one more time. And as we do that, um, just note that we'll celebrate communion at the end of after the sermon. And so even preparing your hearts for this means of grace. This means of grace where together, having participated by hearing a sermon Paul says then in 1 Corinthians 11 that we actually preach one. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So let's go one more time to the throne of grace. We need you. We gladly boast with Paul In our weakness this morning, Father, because the Son has said, my grace is sufficient for you. We need your help. We need strength. But more than anything, we need that illuminating power of your Holy Spirit to show us your son whom you sent, the word made flesh and who dwelt among us that we might behold his glory. We ask this in Christ's name, amen, amen. Downtown last week, Cheryl and I were in the car. I didn't even say this to her. We pulled up to a traffic light and I looked left And right beside me was a, probably a brand new Corvette. (laughs) You ever just want a car? (laughs) I just wanted that car. It's like the, in the Gurney's seed catalog, there's a variety of corn. I've mentioned it here before. It's called You Just Gotta Have It. It's so sweet, you just gotta have it. And this morning as we come to the 10th word, we'll come to this idea of desire. And so you'll notice that the title of my sermon is the 10th commandment, the defiling desire of coveting. And ever since the fall, we've had this tendency to look out for ourselves first. And to say that it's natural is not to say that it was original with nature. It's normal to fall in nature, but not normal for innocence and for original nature as we were made. But ever since the fall, we have this tendency to look out for ourselves first, not loving our neighbor 
And concentrically, when you read that, as the Israelites were hearing God speak at the mountain, they could look left, look right at their Israelite brother and sister and think in terms of that. In the same way we think of our neighbor. If you live at 103, it's the person that lives at 101. And the person that lives in 105, in 102, and 104, and 106 on your street. And we'll see then particularly Paul narrows that scope to say in Ephesians 5, that we ought to be thinking of our brothers and sisters in Christ as well, and particularly with his commandment. But we have this tendency to not love our neighbors, we should, by wanting what we want and desiring what we desire. And it's that desire that's the defiling desire or coveting, the defiling desire of coveting or covetousness. But because God is enough, here's the big idea. Because God is enough, the gospel calls us not to content ourselves with coveting, but to actually covet contentment. Not to content ourselves with coveting, but to covet contentment. The issue not, is not fundamentally desire, but misplaced desire. You're a worshiper. You will want to worship. You will want to desire. That's connected to the affections of your heart. And so it's not about that. It's but about the misdirection of the defiling desire of covetousness. So this morning, we come a final time in this series, to the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. We're at the end of the second table of the law, and our concern, God's concern, is our duty like this. Is our duty in love horizontally towards our neighbor. In fact, Paul says in Romans 13, 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And so now the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And I want to read the parallel to this in Deuteronomy 5.21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And you might have noticed that in this second passage, in the Deuteronomy 5.21 version, there are a few differences from the Exodus 20 version. But the essence of the commandment is the same. What is forbidden is unchanged, And so the same for what will be required. And I want to point these out briefly to you. The Deuteronomy 521 passage, in parallel with the normal order of the commandments, 7th, 8th, and 9th, naturally places the 7th commandment in front of the 8th. And so it says, Deuteronomy 521, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Second, I want to see how field 
is added to the list in addition to house is something that may not be coveted. You could think of acreage or homestead. Sometimes when I go down Brushy Creek Road and turn left on Suber, there's all this property in the spring. I see wild turkeys out in that field. And sometimes I think it'd be so nice to own that property. And so from wife to house to field to servants to livestock, everything is under consideration. And by virtue of that phrase, or anything that is your neighbor's, nothing is excluded. It covers everything. Anything and everything that is our neighbor's or everything that is our brothers or sisters in Christ is given a sanctity here by the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. We may not steal it for our use or pleasure, and neither may we covet it. Kids, think about this just for a moment. Coveting is a sin, is a breaking of the law that by standing still, sitting still, stoically, even no expression on your face. No one would know if you were happy or sad. Yet by sitting still, not speaking a word, not giving an expression of happiness or sadness, yet in that moment you may violate this commandment. You shall not covet. And why this wide selection of possible objects from wife all the way to a donkey? And I'm not saying that those are in the same category, so no one claimed that I'm expressed. All right. But why the wide selection of possible objects? Alec Mottier makes this point. The intention here in the 10th commandment is not to limit the scope of the commandment to these precise objects. But by heaping one possible object of coveting on another to drive home the seriousness of the sin of covetousness itself. Its target is specifically and comprehensively comprehensively, what he calls the contemplative, or you might say contemplative sin. What you think about, what you're mulling over, what you're desiring. And the intent is that which in the last resort determines the moral character of the act. The intent, let me repeat that again. The intent is that which in the last resort determines the moral character of the act. What is it that you want? What is it that you desire to do? And that's why later he points out that the word in Romans 7 that Paul says made him look all around and realize he was chock full of it, was that sin you shall not covet. You shall not covet. The Deuteronomy passage also uses this language in the second sentence. I want you to notice it separates it. It says, and you shall not desire your neighbor's. The word there for desire is really an intense desire, a craving, like you just, like, like just got to have it, like the desire you have for sunshine after two straight weeks of dreary rain and clouds. I think we know a little bit about that. Or that first cup of coffee in the morning 
where you almost want to excuse your grumpiness until you've had it. Or the peppermint chip milkshake available for a limited time at a participating Chick-fil-A store near you during the holidays. I've been thinking, I just got to have that, just one. I want to give you an outline for our message. I want us to see first the forbidden character of coveting. So three-point outline, the forbidden character of coveting. Secondly, the defiling desire of coveting. And we will use coveting and covetousness as synonyms, okay? Coveting or covetousness as synonyms. And then finally, the freedom of contentment. So first, the forbidden character of coveting. Secondly, the defiling desire of coveting or covetousness. And then finally, the freedom of contentment. Let's be plain. Coveting is off limits. And I want us to take this commandment, one sentence and five lines in Exodus 20, verse 17, and fully unpack it. God says it's off limits. It's not a right or prerogative we have. Even if it's the type thing that's sitting silently, sitting still, expressionless, we might be doing it. And sometimes we're even coveting and we ourselves are not aware that we're doing it. But it's not a right or prerogative we have. It's non-negotiable. Remember that from our earlier messages, the 10th commandment is paired with the first and second commandments. They deal with the affections of the heart. So this commandment, like the first two, is a matter of the heart, the affections, the very core of your inner being, your soul. And the priority of God, the exclusivity of God is the object of our worship. You shall have no other gods before me or besides me. And you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. These commandments acknowledge that we, by nature, are worshipers. It's intrinsic to our nature. And so these three commandments in particular, they regulate the worship that we offer God. We are to worship him exclusively, the first commandment. We are to worship him, if you will, spiritually, And it makes sense then why Jesus says to the woman at the well that God seeks worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. For God is spirit and does not have a body like men. And so we worship him as he is spirit. He is invisible. And he is three in one. He is indivisible. And so we do not make idols out of created matter, out of the created realm that would replicate in image or likeness something from the created realm. We're not to worship those and so eclipse that true and and undeserved worship that's reserved for God alone as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Eighth Commandment, or the Tenth Commandment, is you might say in a similar genus. 
if differing species, to use biological terms from those first and second commandments. That genus is worship. Right, acceptable, and pleasing worship. And it's why the apostle Paul calls coveting or covetousness what? He says it's equal to idolatry. Josh read from Colossians 3 earlier, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And he reserves, if you'll know, if you'll notice he reserves in that list, in Colossians 3, 1 through 6, covetousness last in his list. Because he says, put that covetousness to death, which is idolatry. So why the forbidden character of coveting? Because coveting is misplaced desire. It's misdirected desire. G.I. Williamson says that what is particular about coveting is that it springs out of a unholy dissatisfaction. He says the reason this commandment speaks of such common possessions, forgive me here, house, field, wife, servants, oxen, and donkeys, is this, he says, covetousness begins with a dissatisfied heart. Kids, some of you know that the great mighty Mississippi River with thousands of gallons per minute flowing south all begins at a little state park in northern Minnesota in a single spring. And some 2,400 miles exits and spills out into the delta of the Gulf of Mexico. But that great mighty river begins with a little spring in northern Minnesota. And so coveting and covetousness begins with this dissatisfied heart. Tell me about yours. Think about this for a moment. May a person desire a spouse? Yes. May a person desire property such as real estate or a house? Yes. And we understand it in the historical context of the book of Exodus, servants were common. So we read the servants, his male servant and his female servant, okay? And as I preach this, I'm pretty sure that no one within the sound of my voice has male and female servants like those that were hearing this in that day. Now, kids, I'm not saying that mom and dad sometimes don't conscript you for tasks that you wish you didn't have to do. But you're not a male servant or female servant as in this day. So don't miss the heart of this commandment just because God included what was common to his people's experience in that day, but not ours. The point is that what is not forbidden here is the desire for something that your neighbor may also have or own. What is forbidden here is this inordinate craving desire for something that is your neighbor's. It could be their intellect. It could be their iPhone. It could be their playset. Like as for me, it could be their Corvette. There's all types of things. You fill in the blank. What's forbidden here is that inordinate craving for what's your neighbor's. And so, brothers and sisters and little children of GBC, that's coveting. It's covetousness. And if you were eaten up with covetousness, Paul says you're an idolater. 
You might as well bow down in adoring worship to anything or to anyone rather than the God of the universe who made you in all things. You might as well rip open your heart and give it all to someone other than the one of whom those 24 elders and the four living creatures heard the voices of myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels like the sound of mighty waters saying, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That is worship. Right worship. Coveting is not. And so in Ephesians 5, Paul says covetousness with sexual immorality and purity, must not even be named among the gathered saints. Shh. Not even a word. Why? Because we, as his beloved children, are commissioned to walk in this self-giving, outpouring Love in imitation of God, in imitation of Christ's sacrificial offering of himself, broken and spilled out, wooing and exotic in the costly fragrance of Christ's blood-bought redemption. But Paul has more to say, and it's heavy, it's heavy, it's heavy, it's designed to sober us. Verse 5 of Ephesians 5. No one who is covetousness, who is covetous, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And he adds this: let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't be tricked. For because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. That's the forbidden character of coveting. I want us now to look at the defiling desire of coveting. Why would we give this label of defiling desire to the sin of coveting? And I want to lay out for you just how defiling coveting is, how spoiling it is to the soul. First, it's a defiling desire because what you'll notice is that God is absent. God is absent. That is defiling. God is forgotten when your heart is inordinately set upon what God has given another, or it's transfixed with what he has not yet given to you, and we become practical atheists. We forget him. It's all about houses and fields and wives and servants and oxen and donkey. And those things are temporal. Those things are not forever. They're good. And we don't want to grasp one thing and let go of the other. God has given you and to me all things richly to enjoy. I think about this time of year, how much we enjoy decorations. Even something as beautiful as a poinsettia. But we worship the giver and not the gift. We receive the gift while glorying and enjoying particularly the giver. Well, not only is God is absent, but the heart drowns in dissatisfaction. Kids, remember our expression, root to fruit, right? Root to fruit. 
Well, your chronic dissatisfaction, your unhappiness without God has drawn the lines in the details of your life is the root of the defiling desire of covetousness. You might think the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 73 begins his psalm with saying he was eaten up with that. It just ate him up. He said, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Maybe you think, if only you had something else, someone else, someone else's, then you think you would be happy and fulfilled. And the problem with dissatisfaction, with this chronic, unholy dissatisfaction in your life, is that it's a mirage. And that if you could just get something different or more, you'd finally be happy or joyful. It's a mirage like that oasis of water that the man in the desert dying of thirst thinks he sees water and my thirst will be satisfied. It's just over that next sand dune. It's not there. It never will be. You can never get enough of material things or fulfilling relationships or respect that you think you deserve or financial security that seems to be fleeting to replace the joy and security of the one who says in the covenant of grace, I will be your God, you will be my people so that the nations will know that I am the Lord. Not only is God absent as we think of this defiling desire, not only does the heart drown in dissatisfaction, but we shift from godly desire for our neighbors, and we become practical mercenaries absorbed in self-interest. Rather than rejoicing over what God has given our neighbor or the person beside us, we crave what they have. And rather than praying for the flourishing of our neighbor's circumstances and possessions, we are absorbed with the potential that theirs might be ours. And I want to confess this to you. You know about the Corvette. When you turn in our neighborhood, it's Silverleaf right down here. There's a couple of houses that they look, they've been decorated. They look something like right out of a magazine. There's no doubt that whoever lives in those houses has an incredible touch for holiday decorations. And a couple of times I've thought they probably don't understand the real meaning of Christmas. They're really good with decorations, but they don't really get the whole story. And then I thought, what a jerk. Why don't you have joy in the gifts that some have, just like looking out here, to create and advance aesthetic beauty, something that God does, that reflects the fact that their image bears. Think of the scene in Luke 15 when the prodigal's father, he directs the servants to get a feast going, and then he appeals to the self-righteous older brother who wants to exclude himself from this raucous celebration and feast 
when the prodigal finally returned. You never gave me a party. That's what he said. And a covetous heart will subtly shift you millimeter by millimeter, inch by inch from a godly desire for your neighbor's welfare and rejoicing for the goodness and kindness of God to them to a selfish, defiling desire to have what God in sovereign wisdom and love has given to your neighbor. But in an expression of that same sovereign love and wisdom, for now, has withheld from you. And you may cater to this coveting heart, this spurning love and rejoicing over the good for your neighbor. You may cater to this within you without anyone knowing, even you. It's virtually undetectable like an invisible but deadly gas. There's another thing it does. It creates this defiling desire has a preoccupation with getting rather than giving. And when God is absent, when your heart is marked by dissatisfaction, when you've shifted from a care for your neighbor that is shaped by the indwelling Spirit of God, these are indicators of how defiling this inordinate, out-of-bounds desire that coveting is. If you're more concerned with what you receive and get than what you give, you're at risk to covet. Coveting this unchecked, unmortified, and not put off or put aside by the power of the Spirit will always push you like a hand to the small of the back towards the selfishness of not just getting but taking by any means out of self-interest. There can be no other outcome. There's a final thing as we think of the defiling desire, and that is that coveting is a root of a multitude of sins. As Pastor Jamie has quoted many times, an idol is anything you will sin to what? Get. Or sin because you have not gotten it. That's the litmus test of an idol. And so the sin of coveting, virtual idolatry, is the taproot that begets, that produces a multitude of sins. Go and look at, for that in the book of James chapter 4, or even Paul with Romans 7. Once we covet, the door is swung wide open. We've stepped out on to the slippery hill. Remember that coveting is a matter of the heart. It's internalized. And though we read, if you look in Exodus 20 and verse 6 for a moment, of God who is showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, all right? And though we read of our feelings and actions bound together in this expression by the covenant-keeping Lord, right? Those who love me, feeling. Those who keep my commandments, action. Alec Maudier says this, it's the function of the final commandment, this 10th word, to make explicit the internalizing of the whole law and the dire reality of sin in the heart. We see this phenomenon throughout the word. 
Do you remember Achan in Joshua 7? He had forgotten the ban, those things of the enemy devoted to destruction. And as I read in his own words to Joshua, in Joshua 7.20, I want you to see this progression from seeing to coveting to stealing and taking to concealing. He says, truly, speaking to Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. I saw them, I coveted them, I took them, and see they are hidden. There's the concealment. They are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. What a cost. The action on Achan's part cost him both his and his family's life under a pile of stones. What about King David? Someone says, it may have been impossible for David to not have seen Bathsheba in her beauty, but he did not have to look and keep on looking. And so David's initial look became a gaze, which became a desire for another man's wife, adultery of the heart, which naturally led to physical adultery. And from there, David would not stop at murder to have what he just had to have. That's why he wrote these words in his psalm of confession and Psalm 51, 6, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Who can forget Ananias and Sapphira? In Acts 5, they held back some of the proceeds from the sale of a piece of property they owned. And Ananias initiated the action, but Sapphira was fully in on it. She could have stopped her husband. And though the culture and the spirit of the early church was to give fully to the work of the gospel from the proceeds of what they had. This couple just had to have what they had to have. And so they kept it, representing that they were giving the whole. At what price did they hold back? Immediate death. Paul says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. We've seen the forbidden character of coveting. We've seen the defiling desire of coveting. Just briefly now, I want us to see the freedom of contentment. What do we mean by freedom? If you think about this, a person could find freedom in no longer having any debt. They could find or define freedom in being released from prison or even being fired from or quitting a job that felt like something halfway between drudgery and slavery. So I have a question as we think about contentment as we end this message. How will we combat the temptation to coveting? This internalized at the level of the heart grasping for what isn't ours. For what God has given to our neighbor but not to us. How will you evade this clinging unholy dissatisfaction of the idolatry of a covetous spirit? How I ask Will you be free? Here's the answer. It's like the little boy in the Sunday school class in Australia. 
the teacher is saying, he knew the answer to every question was Jesus, right? But he said when the, the teacher or was asking, now what is a fuzzy little brown thing that climbs up in a tree in our country? And he's thinking that's a koala bear or something like that or a three-toed sloth. But he says, Jesus, okay. The normally acceptable gospel answer is always Jesus. When we think, how will we be free from the idolatry of a covetous spirit? But in this case, it's actually the answer that's certifiably correct. Through Christ alone, we may cultivate a heart of contentment so true north that we cannot go south to the barrenness and desolation of the idolatry of covetousness. Contentment is the Christian's antidote to the in Christ deeply satisfied with God state of the soul. It was a Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, who defined Christian contentment as that most rare of all jewels. He said this Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And when Paul wrote this to the Philippians, it's the secret that he had discovered. He said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What was those all things? It was Paul's battle for contentment in the varying circumstances of his life, both abounding with much and being brought low with little. Christian, Christ is the author and finisher of your faith. For Paul, Christ was the one whom he was sent to preach. Christ was the one whom Paul promised the Philippians would guard their hearts and their minds as they brought their petitions to their heavenly Father. It is this Christ who strengthened Paul along every step of his apostolic journey, who held him fast in the hours of deepest despondency. And it is Christ who will strengthen you. You cannot fight the battle against discontentment and a chronically unholy dissatisfied heart in your own strength. You must gladly boast of your weakness that you may celebrate and receive his strength. He will strengthen you. He alone is your strength for genuine God-glorifying contentment. And what you think about that, it's that contentment underwritten and sponsored by the very Son of God who was tempted in every way as we were yet without sin. It's that contentment in Him, that trust in the way He knits every story and every thread in the story of your life, though it looks like jumbled threads to you underneath, the tapestry above is yet more beautiful. And that's your antidote. That's your answer to put to death this coveted spirit that will quench the life of God in your soul. Little girl, little girls, little boys, young women, young men, older women, older men. Come to faith 
this morning. Come to him whom God has sent, the word made flesh, and who dwelt among us. For when you see him, truly you have seen the one who sent him. That's what John, Jesus says in John 12. And then you have the promise of deep, abiding, contented joy. It's yours. Come. Come and be truly satisfied.